This is Africa Digest. Nineteen hundred hours Central African time. Good evening. Welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on frequency one five two three five kilohertz on the nineteen meter band to West Africa. And on channel 902 and the DSTV audio bouquet, my name is Spumile Lezondi with Asanda Matawinya, Nemisani Matebula and Tami Kozam. Let's take a look at the top stories. Kenyan government unable to pay public sector wages. Ethiopia still battles regions that practice female genital mutilation. In economics, Zambia expected to produce 600,000 tons of copper this year. And in sports, FIFA's Ethics Committee bans a former official of the South African Football Association. Yes, that's all the news. Good evening. Ten people have been killed uh, during heavy gunfire and grenade explosions that rocked Bunjumbura in the capital city of Burundi. The clashes were between armed men and police forces. Among the dead included journalists working for the National Radio Television and a policeman. From Bunjumbura, Bernard Bankukira reports. Everything started around 3 p.m. on this Tuesday when unknown armed men kidnapped three police agents killing one of them and injuring another. As retaliation, police launched a manhunt to find the criminals thought to be hiding among residents. According to witnesses, police indiscriminately shot at people in the households. Among the dead include the long-term cameraman of the country's national radio television, Christophe Nkezawahizi, who was killed at his home alongside his wife and two children. Two letters written by the late former president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela, while he was in prison, are on display at an exhibition in Cape Town. The exhibition forms part of a collection entitled The Road to Democracy. Some rare stamps with millions of rand are also on display. The SABC's Cindy Achilles reports. Found in a box at a post office in the Eastern Cape, the letters are written in Madiba's handwriting, rejecting a proposal that he be released into the then homeland of Transkei in the 1980s. The apartheid government urged Transkei leader Kaiser Matanzima to negotiate with Madiba in this regard, but to no avail. Madiba strongly expressed himself, asking not to be approached with the idea again. The last of three Al Jazeera English journalists who had been imprisoned in Egypt has left the country and arrived in Qatar. An Al Jazeera spokesperson has confirmed Baha Mohammed's arrival in Doha. Mohammed and Canadian colleague Mohammed Fami were released from prison after receiving a pardon from Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in September. Australian Peter Grester, who was arrested with Fami and Mohammed in December 2013, was deported from Egypt a year ago but has not been pardoned. The trio was accused of supporting the outlawed Muslim Brotherhood and of spreading false news about Egypt. More than 2 billion people in developing countries around the world are benefiting from social food schemes. This is according to a report in the State of Food and Agriculture 2015, published by the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. One such scheme is the Food for Life Children's Project in Durban, South Africa. Volunteer at the project, Hina Natu, explains. Food for Life Children's Project is basically a project that combines and provides education and nutrition to various schools, 
orphanages and, you know, impoverished communities. So basically what we go and do, we go into uh, these schools, we give them educational activities. Like a lot of our volunteers are engineering students, so we go in there, we talk about engineering and do some cool experiments, and we'll also provide them with food. I'm just giving uh, students like new educational pieces that they can take home with them. And finally, the South African National Council for the Blind has vowed to ensure that the government amend the Copyright Act to be in line with the Marrakesh Treaty. This treaty focuses on copyright exceptions to ensure that people who are visually impaired can access books and other works covered by copyright. SANCB National Chairperson Lesiba Namuvilindlela. We want to have a comprehensive plan with resolutions so that for the next biennial period, we are able to have guidelines in terms of policies for government to intervene on issues of blind and partially sighted persons. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Matsaunyani. Nineteen oh five Central African time. Thank you very much, Asanda, for that update. Ten people have been killed during heavy gunfire and grenade explosions that rocked Puchumbura, the capital city of Burundi, in Sector 3 of the northern neighborhood of Ngagara between armed men and police forces. Among the dead include eight journalists working for the national radio television and all family members. As witnesses speaking of arbitrary killings, the police spokesperson says the dead persons were victims of fire exchange and the criminals. Penad Bangkokira reports from Puchumbura. Everything started around 3 p.m. on this Tuesday when unknown armed men kidnapped three police agents, killing one of them and injuring another, while the remaining one managed to escape and alert his fellows. As retaliation, police launched a manhunt to find the criminals thought to be hiding among residents. According to witnesses, police indiscriminately shot at people in the households. Among the dead include the long-term cameraman of the country's national radio television, Christophe Nkezabahizi, who was killed at his home alongside his wife and two children. Here at Avenue Bouye in the northern neighborhood of Ngagara 3, there have been killings of people. Policemen came and knocked on the doors. They told people if you are not involved come out hands up and when one goes out they shoot at them so on this avenue Bouye of the neighborhood of Gagara 3 a total of nine people have been killed among whom a journalist working for national radio television of Burundi known as Christophe Nezawaizi who has been killed with all his family his wife and his two children together with a young man living in his home police gives a different description accounting on events the police spokesman said police exchanged the fire with the criminals who had attacked the agents According to him, the dead people were killed in the shootouts with assailants. Yesterday, around 15 hours, in the area of Ngagara Sector 3 at Avenue Bouye, three policemen in patrol were abducted, then handcuffed 
by criminals who then shot at them with a pistol. They also threw grenades to one of the three policemen who was not handcuffed and who managed to escape. One of the policemen died on the spot while another one sustained severe injuries. He has been taken to hospital. An alert was made to police and when our agents arrived at the scene, they were received with gunshots by those criminals and a fire exchange that ensued caused the seven people killed and two dead bodies were also found this morning. Gunshots and grenade explosions continued till late at night in several areas of the capital Bujumbura, from Gagara to the neighboring Chibitoke and Mutangano in the north of the capital, Buiza Nyakabiga in the downtown of the capital, then in Kanyosha in the south. Sporadic gunshots and grenade explosions continue to be heard till Tuesday night. Tiangurikie still says police continued to hunt down criminals who wanted to wreak havoc among people. In the area of Chibitoke yesterday at 6 p.m., a criminal carrying an AK-47 rifle with a grenade attempted to attack a police post. Policemen were then alerted by the population and chased down the criminal until the 8th Avenue where he threw the grenade and vanished. In the area of Buisa, a grenade was thrown around 8 p.m., killing one young woman. We had also a similar scene in the neighborhood of Nakabiga near the University of Burundi where two grenades were thrown, causing no damages. It was around 20 hours. From April 2015, Burundi is under electro-violent crisis that has paralyzed the country and claimed hundreds of lives and forced hundreds of thousands out of the country as refugees. Following the July controversial presidential poll after which President Pierre Nkurunziza won the contentious third term, targeted political killings have claimed several prominent politicians and military officials. Grenade explosions and gunfire occur on a daily basis as the government struggles to restore peace and stability across the country, particularly in the capital Bujumbura. President Kurunziza has set a month deadline for civilians owning illegal weapons to voluntarily hand them over to authorities. Although Burundian authorities claim to have seized many of them, lives continue to be lost. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira reporting from Bujumbura. The Kenyan government is literally broke and has been unable to meet its financial obligations. Thousands of public servants, health workers, parliamentary staff and teachers in public schools have not yet received their salaries as the National Treasury in Nairobi continues to battle the financial crisis. According to our Nairobi correspondent, Mwaike Konyo, operations in various government departments have been grossly affected by the acute shortages of funds from the National Treasury. The Kenyan government is currently facing serious financial crisis and there seems to be little money to perform its financial obligations. Operations in various government departments have been grossly affected by the financial crunch and the situation looks bleak. Thousands of public servants, including health workers, parliamentary staff, county governments and teachers in public schools have not yet received their salaries. Electricity and water supply in parliamentary buildings have been disconnected for several days for failure to pay monthly bills. And as a result, Kenyan parliament has been up in arms against the financial crisis in the country, with the opposition members of parliament accusing the government for the mismanagement of the economy, including rampant corruption cases in public sector. There has been a acrimonious debate in Kenyan parliament with the members of parliament allied to the Kenyatta government defending the national treasury, claiming the crisis may be due to poor budget implementation. The reality, it is known. Let us not bring party politics here. Power was disconnected on Friday at 3.18 a.m. 
until Monday, Madam Speaker. It has never happened, even where, and, and I can confirm, Madam Speaker. Ma, 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 I think I, I have the floor. Honorable I have members. the floor. Don't, don't, don't. Honorable members, remember everybody has a, has a, has a, a chance to speak, in the, an equal opportunity to speak. You're good. This is, Madam Speaker, Madam Speaker, I'm listening to Kainan and I'm, I'm hearing him, but I have a concern. Should we sit in this chambers to talk about disconnected power in my view in my view order, order, no i have a right to speak madam speaker order, i have a right members. to speak and i want to say this without fear so don't think shouting at me will keep shut me up eh? opposition members of parliament have raised concern to the poor handling of funds collected by the kenya revenue authority including the national treasury MP Peter Omaloa. Kenyans are paying taxes and KRA as it collects taxes, the money goes to the treasury. So the issue here is about treasury. We need to be told by the CS treasury, the PS treasury, what is happening because funds have not been released, not just the Parliamentary Service Commission, but even when you come to KERA, the Kenya Roads Authority, they don't have money, CDF money is not there, basically almost all the commissions. And as the national treasury battles with the cash crisis in the country, the government parliamentary budget committee and other stakeholders are engaged in an emergency meeting on the current financial situation in the country. According to economic and financial analyst in Nairobi, there are several reasons why the Kenyan government is literally broke. Kenyan Revenue Authority has failed to meet the revenue target for the last two months of the financial year. The Kenyan shilling has weakened in the international financial market and there has been an increasing high interest rates in the country. But President Uru Kenyatta claims that raising taxes, borrowing more money or cutting back on development programs would not be the solution to the current financial crisis. Raising taxes, borrowing more money or cutting back on development programs will raise the cost of living, slow down our economy and increase unemployment and poverty. None of these options is tenable. Our country must live within its means. Currently, the government is holding talks with various banks in the country with the intention of borrowing at least 80 billion shillings for the current financial year. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaiki Konyo in Nairobi. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Culture and Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
You still listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance with Ms. Pumela Lezondi. Find us on Twitter, it's Channel Africa One on Twitter, Channel Africa One. South Africa's Department of Higher Education and Training says the University of Witwatersrand students who are protesting should do so responsibly. Students are protesting over a proposed increase of 10.5% in tuition fees for next year. The Department of Higher Education and Training says such financial issues and those regarding transformation in the education sector will top the agenda at its summit starting tomorrow. The summit taking place in the port city of Durban will bring together key stakeholders for critical engagements regarding the country's education system. More from Kaye Mgwanyana, Midelias and Director at the Department of Higher Education and Training. The intention of the summit first is to take stock of the implementation of the previous decisions in terms of overhauling and transforming the higher education and training landscape. A number of things have happened since then, but also it was about what are the key necessary things to do in the context of the the, the, the new term in office 2014 to 2019 that the minister must focus on in with regard to issues of transformation. And uh, we are quite uh, happy that coincidentally this year has been a year that has been categorized as a, a, a year of radical push for transformation from students, your current push open movement, your uh, road must fall, have actually raised issues sharply, which in a way has uh, elevated even the, the intentions of this family. That's why we have invited even all those movements to come and argue. What are some of the main topics that will be in the agenda at the summit? One of the key issues that we'll be focusing on is the transformation of the institutional culture of our institutions, especially those institutions of wide African universities, the issue of language that is used for teaching, the issue around the transformation of the curriculum. Some students choose to call it equalization of the curriculum. Those are issues that will be dealt with, but the transformation at a level of professorial in some of we still remain white and male. You don't see the reflection of our demographics. And also the summit will focus on how to deal with uh, the issue of your historically disadvantaged institutions, like your Ford Hales, of Zuland, Vendor, Teflop, which were regarded as Bush University. How to, what are the catch-up interventions so that they get upgraded in terms of quality teaching, quality research, infrastructure, the production of postgrads, so that they are equal to your vets, to your University of Pretoria, UJ, and so on. So all of those issues uh, will be dealt with and the revitalization of the academic profession so that we see many young people opting to become academics and, and continue with their studies so that they acquire PhD and they make teaching as lectures to be an academic choice of their mm. career. The challenges in the higher education and training sector have been a bone of contention for many in the past few weeks. And as it stands, students at the University of Vetvetersrand have been protesting today against the higher fees at the institution. What do you have to say about this? The, the minister uh, earlier this year actually instructed the department to do an investigation on what, he, on what we call the cost drivers in our universities 
that that motivates universities to spike the tuition fees every year. Because we are not comfortable ourselves that each and every year universities always decide to hike tuition in double digit all the time. And our preliminary engagement, they tell you that they are importing stationery, they are importing books and so on from Europe. And the, the rent exchange value against your dollar or your euro makes them to pay more. And they pass the money, uh, recovery money to the tuition fee. But the minister said that let's investigate this concretely and say what are the cost factors, uh, the cost drivers that justify this exorbitant so that the minister can able to intervene. Because he wants to intervene, probably there could be the possibility for the minister to regulate the tuition fees in, in, in universities so that this does not become a sector of academic exclusion as it is now because it will seem that the extent to which universities are raising fees are such that many of our students can't afford because of the family background to therefore and they default the system and able to pay for the following year, that year and so on and therefore they become drop out. Now we are looking at that while the minister is waiting for the recommendations from the team, the department and we are engaging the, the university vice chancellors through the Association University of South Africa, your former ISA, to say that how do we arrest this? As they are marching in vain, they must do so responsibly. Any damage to property, any resort to violence, as we've seen in other institutions, will be condemned in the strongest terms. And the moment strikes degenerate to criminal act, they become criminals overnight. So we ask them to do protestation in a peaceful way. Are we going to see a great representation of the youth or students themselves at the summit? Because at the end of the day, they are the ones who are affected by um, issues of transformation at their different institutions. They are strongly represented. We have invited all your student bodies, political bodies uh, across, whether it's your South Coast, your EFS, it's your DAU students, across all of them. Actually, beyond that, we've even given them a session where they must present a paper which will be debated there by all academics, government and members of parliament. So we've given them quite enough so that they have uh, an opportunity to influence the discourse and the outcome of the summit. Kayen Gwanyan is the media liaison director at the South African Department of Higher Education and Training talking to Komuto Mopulani. Info at channelafrica.co.za on email. We welcome your feedback on any of our stories, such as the next one. There's no safety for women in Iraq, and this is according to the founder of a network which operates underground shelters there for female survivors of abuse. Yanar Mohammed addressed the United Nations Security Council at an open debate to mark the 15th anniversary of a resolution on women, peace and security. She highlighted not only the sexual enslavement and trafficking of women by the extremist group ISIL, but also what she said were failings of the part of the government in Baghdad to treat women equally. Far from supporting the refugees, the government had declared them illegal. Mohammed explains why she had come to speak at the UN headquarters. The resolution 1325 is about protection, safety, empowerment and legislation for women's rights. 
and it was abiding for all countries that are under conflict. I come from Iraq. In Iraq, neither any of those uh, provisions of the resolution was applied by the government. There is no safety for women as uh, uh, all kinds of violence, social violence are subject on her and there is no protection for her uh, as when she was uh, trafficked under ISIS and uh, enslaved in ways that the modern history has not heard of. These are issues that we wanted to highlight here and we did. I did it in the speech and I also added that it's not only ISIS that is trafficking women of Iraq. There is a lot of trafficking under the government of Iraq, which not much has been done against. And uh, the issue of legislation, I also highlighted that uh, women are still subject to violence because the, the laws still do not look at her as a full citizen and the policies are uh, even worse than that. I'm sure that the Iraqi government would say that they are doing what they can to protect women under the Iraqi constitution? The Iraqi government is not doing anything to protect women of Iraq. And when others like NGOs are protecting them, they are preventing us. They are telling us that it is illegal activity. So they look at the protection of women as uh, as a criminal activity to be held accountable for. That's the reason I came here to tell the international community that the state that you built in Iraq is treating, is imposing violence on women and also upon the organizations of women to ask for uh, their assistance in forcing the Iraqi government to change legislation and to allow allow sheltering of women, but also to allow the voices of women. What is it that you say are the, are the vital changes that, that, that need to happen now then in terms of policy towards women? The issue of uh, saving women from honor killing and from trafficking uh, is so high in Iraq. Uh, there is such a need for it that there needs to be a new legislation that gives the legal status to the shelters of women to be run by NGOs. The government is uh, run by extremists, by Islamist extremists, and they do not uh, care. Obviously, they would deny that categorically, that they're extremists. They deny it right away, and they do not allow you to function. At some point, a person in the government called us as prostitutes who are calling for the promiscuity of women. So for us in Iraq to feel that we can run our women's rights work in a safe way, we need the support of the international community and also for the women's rights defenders also. Yanar Mohammed is the founder of the Organization of Women's Freedom in Iraq, talking to you and radius Matthew Wells. This is Channel Africa. South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1926 Central African Time, right here on Channel Africa. The Human Sciences Research Council, HSRC, says a policy and practice around South African fatherhood has evolved over the years. According to the organization, there was virtually no research on fatherhood in the country less than a decade ago. 
Dr. Dawanda Makusha, Senior Research Specialist at the Human and Social Development Unit of the Human Sciences Research Council, speaks about the progress made in this field of research. I think policy and practice around South African fatherhood has evolved over the past decade. As you might be aware, uh, in 2003, the HSOC started uh, the fatherhood project under the leadership of Professor Linda Richter and the team. Since then, the white paper on families in South Africa acknowledging the importance of fathers in family life. There's also been a general kind of like view that fatherhood in South Africa is, is not homogeneous. So there is a kind of view that we've moved away from just looking at nuclear families and looking at fatherhood in that kind of space. But now we know that we've got foster fathers, we've got gay fathers, we've got issues around adoptive fathers, foster parents and all these kind of issues. Let's dissect the issue a bit, Doctor. Do men's general failure to contribute significantly to child care present as a barrier to women's full participation in society and the labor market? I think, yes, it does, but also it presents a failure among men themselves. Men's failure to provide support is, comes usually at a huge deficit for men themselves because contrary to popular perception, most men actually want to be involved in their children's life, actually want to contribute. But the fact that, you know, we've got structural problems like poverty, unemployment, and inequalities, these make it difficult for very poor men who are living in poverty to be able to provide for their families. You'll be aware of the African traditions of paying in Slaulo and uh, Lobola, which makes it also difficult for men to be involved in the children's lives because if you haven't paid damages or the bride price, it is difficult for you to stay with your children. So this creates a difficult situation for women to then say, okay, fine, because they don't have these kind of supporting structures that are there. We're aware that there is high non-marital fertility in South Africa. And this kind of presents a situation where you've got a lot of single female-headed households and it's difficult for women to prosper also in even childcare and also in the labor market. Now, the problem of absent fathers is often raised as an issue of concern. Do you think that enough is known about the reasons why so many fathers disengage from their children's lives? I think, like you have said, there is this whole issue about deadbeat fathers in South Africa, men who just don't want to be there, who are very irresponsible, who do not want to support their children. I think there is more to that than, you know, those kind of negative images that portray men as, you know, just not being there, just being absent. I think, like I said earlier, there are some men who want to be involved, and it's up to the society, it's up to the government, it's up to the communities to accept that some men who want to be involved in their children cannot do this because, firstly, because of structural issues that I mentioned, poverty, inequality, and unemployment, and also the fact that we've got, you know, these cultural barriers. I've talked about issues around Lobola, issues around Inklaul, which restrict men to stay with their children to be, until those kind of, like, traditional rituals are met. And these are issues that are not usually raised when we talk of absent fathers, we acknowledge that there are some fathers who are just not there, who do not want to be involved in their children's lives. But there are some fathers who want to be there, but they can't because of the current and current status quo of both you know, the culture and also the kind of like structural problems that we're facing as a country in South Africa. And has enough research been done around the role and visibility of gay and bisexual men in relation to families? 
The HSRC has just embarked on a research which is being led by Dr. Tracy Morrison from the Human and Social Development Program, focusing on gay fathers. This research, I think, is actually seminal, like it's one of its kind. We are only just starting to do research on gay fathers in South Africa, mostly because these are issues that are still uneasy to talk about in our South African society. And people do not really want to come out and say, okay, fine, yes, I'm going to talk about gay fathers in the South African context. But I can say from the HSRC research that has just been completed and has been funded by the Ford Foundation, I can safely say that we are making progress and kind of like headway in that regard. Just finally there, what according to your research needs to be done to encourage constructive male involvement and responsible fatherhood in South Africa? I think going forward, firstly, men themselves need to step up. They need to acknowledge that, yes, they are fathers. They need to step up that they are role models. They need to say that, okay, this is my responsibility. If I don't do it, then I should not expect anyone to take this kind of role. But we also need society to acknowledge that men as fathers need to be let in to say, okay, we need to avoid that kind of gatekeeping, that to move away from that kind of culture that, okay, no, men should not do this. It's a woman's job to bath the child, a woman's job to feed the child. Men should be kind of acculturated to say, this is what you need to do. We need the society. We need acknowledgement also from the state that fatherhood is important. We need positive messages from the media to say, you know, they need to advocate for the importance of fatherhood in South Africa. We all know that positive male involvement comes at a very low cost, economically, I mean, and socially for both for the state, the communities, and also the families. If a male is involved in a child's life or in a family, those families are usually likely to, to be better off economically. And also, positive fatherhood is actually very, very good for men. Men who are positive role models, you notice that they'll say, okay, fine, I'm responsible. I can't be involved in any risky behaviors. I can't be violent to my partner. I can't, you know, abuse my children. And all these kind of positive things that come with positive male involvement will also be good for the African family going forward. That is Dr. Tawanda Makusha, who is a senior researcher, research specialist in the Human Sciences and Social Development Unit at the Human Sciences Research Council, and he was talking to Elizabeth Lidicha. Ethiopia still has regions that practice female genital mutilation. Despite a steady reduction in this harmful practice over the past decade, most recent data from the 2011 Welfare and Monitoring Survey indicates that one in every four girls in affected areas is subjected to female genital mutilation. Channel Africa's Coletta Wanjohi traveled to the northeastern region of Ethiopia, where the practice is not only at its highest, but also brutally done. In the northeastern part of Ethiopia is the Afar region. The Afar region is more than 580 kilometers from Ethiopia's capital city, Addis Ababa. And here in Afar, the rate of female genital mutilation or cutting is alarming. 60% of girls under the age of 14 years are subjected to female genital mutilation, placing the region second after Somalia. In this Afar region, girls are subjected to an extreme form of the practice called infibulation, which involves total cutting of the genitalia, followed by stitching. This usually happens when girls are between 7 and 9 years old, but in some districts in this Afar region, it happens even when the babies are only a few days old. 
Aisha is a 17-year-old girl who goes to Semera boarding school. Schools have just opened and she is among the first girls to report to school. Aisha says that she does not remember her own experience of being cut because she was young, but she witnessed that of her seven-year-old sister. She says the pain and torture she saw the baby going through still haunts her until now. If I had the capacity to stop them, I would have stopped it. Now my feeling is if I had a child who was a girl, I would not circumcise her. My wish is for all the Afar people to stop female genital mutilation. I was really worried when I saw my sister being circumcised and I wish I could have stopped it, but I couldn't. Boarding schools in Semera, the capital of the Afar region, like the one which Aisha goes to, are becoming a safe haven for those girls who have been mutilated and want to escape it, and also a healing place for those who have undergone it, like Aisha, and want another life. The chief child protection officer at the United Nations Children Education Fund, UNICEF Ethiopia, Janabu Mahonde, explains that female genital mutilation totally violates the rights of a child and has dire implications not only to the girls but also the national health system. A girl who has been caught sometimes, uh, particularly with the, the worst form of the, of the cutting, which is uh, looking at removing completely the genitula and then with the stitching. Um, in a later stage, it's very difficult for girls to even urinate. It's difficult for her when she has her menstruation. And uh, one of the main impact is uh, on the, on the uh, is fistula, for instance, where the girl will then have a lot of, uh, a lot of difficulties to, to urinate and also um, uh, in terms of the health. 70 kilometers away from Semera boarding school where Aisha is, is Barbara May Maternity Hospital that was opened by an Australian woman who got married to a man from this Afar region and was devastated by the complications of the female genital mutilation. The ward in the hospital has women, some of whom have delivered and others await delivery. As the gynecologist at this hospital explains, all the patients they receive have undergone female genital mutilation and it is mainly during delivery that complications occur. They, they do close it. All the vaginal interruptions will be closed, only small hole will be left for the urine to go through. Otherwise, it is totally closed. And, and they've said there are, different, there are different pains that different women co I mean, undergo through because of this infibulation. Yes. Yeah. It, there are acute complications. That, that means complications that are happening right away during their childhood. What I am seeing here is the <clears throat> later complications, like they will come with cysts. They will, they will form a cyst around their perineum. They will have, uh, <clears throat> totally after, uh, for example, uh, a month back I did one lady who failed to have sexual intercourse after, after seven years of marriage. So they come, she decided to come after seven years, imagine. She is married, but she cannot seek, she failed to seek medical care early. And, and what contributes to this? Because if, the, for example, a woman who has been married for seven years, yeah. who cannot have it, but has spent all that, I yeah. mean, from your talking to them and all that, what yeah. causes this kind of reluctance to come? Uh, the problem, you know, <clears throat> uh, here, there is polygamy. Hmm? So the male 
you have an option. It is a, the problem is with the female and the female awareness and, and the females here as, as, as a part of the developing country. Hmm? Uh, females are here a bit behind whatever the service, social services, medical care, everything. So they don't see care timely. In the ward is a seven-year-old girl lying on a bed, quietly watching with sad eyes. Her mother sits next to her, looking very distant. The doctor explains that the seven-year-old girl has also undergone the brutal female genital mutilation practice. However, her complications are related to the fact that a 17-year-old man raped her. The bitter part is that due to the stitching on her genitalia done during the female genital mutilation, the man used a knife to open her up to allow himself space for penetration. The doctor says that they have so far performed surgery on her and nothing more can be done. But reality is that she will have a very difficult sexual life. Even the bravest of hearts cannot stand the stories told of complications that women suffer even in old age. Yet they underwent the cutting when they were very young. However, Janabu Mahonde, the chief child protection officer at UNICEF Ethiopia, says that all is not lost. Bit by bit, members of the communities that practice female genital mutilation are coming around. The best success stories that we can we can we, we have are those also coming from the parents and for the for the for the from, from the father saying, uh, I don't want to cut my girl. Uh, I want my girl to go to school. I want my, a healthy girl. I want a girl who is going to be able to make, to make also the choice later on for her own daughter, whether her daughter should be cut or not. So those are the best success stories we have. Back in Semera town, excitement builds as children and youth prepare for a race that has been organized by the regional government of Afar, UNICEF and Ethiopia Great Run. It is an empowerment race dubbed ending female genital mutilation or cutting. Aisha, the girl from Semera boarding school who has undergone female genital mutilation but now goes to school, cheers her friends from school as they struggle to finish the five kilometers race. She says that she is happy that she chose to stay in school. Aisha says she will become a nurse so that she helps the girls of the Afar region who have undergone female genital mutilation like her and still suffer the consequences throughout their lives. As the campaign raised by UNICEF comes to a close in Samera, Afar region, one can't help but wonder how long will it take for the community in this Afar region to complete their own race against inflicting wounds on their girls in the name of increasing their value when they are indeed actually subjecting them to a lifetime torture. Koleta Onjoy for Channel Africa Radio in the Afar region, the northeastern part of Ethiopia. Burkina Faso's presidential and parliamentary elections delayed because of a failed coup will now take place on November 29. The polls are seen as a major step in the West African country's road to democracy were originally scheduled for this past Sunday, but had to be put back after a short-lived push by elite troops loyal to the post leader Blaise Compaore. Here's Ntlantla Mahlangu. 
The Presidential Guard, RSP, announced a coup in the rest of West African country on the 17th of September, bringing the country to the edge of chaos for six days before the bid collapsed, with its leaders admitting they did not enjoy popular support. The RSP disarmed and was formally disbanded in a ceremony in the capital Ouagadougou earlier this month. Kompare was ousted in a popular uprising last year after 27 years in power. A number of close aides and supporters have been arrested over the attempted coup. Last week, President Michael Kafando led up to 3,000 people in a memorial service to remember victims of the would-be coup which left 14 people dead and about 251 injured. Meanwhile, an autopsy on the supposed remains of Burkina Faso's iconic former president Thomas Sankara shows he was riddled with bullets during a 1987 coup that brought longtime leader Blaise Compare. Nearly three decades after his death, remains believed to be those of Sankara and 12 former aides were exhumed from a cemetery in the capital Wakadugu in May. It came as part of an investigation into the killing of the man dubbed Africa's Che Guevara, launched five months after his friend and rival Compare was ousted from power in a popular uprising. The circumstances of Sankara's death have been shrouded in mystery for 28 years. Compare, who was suspected of ordering the assassination of his former brother-in-arms, has dismissed calls for an investigation into Sankara's death. Sankara's death certificate stated the 37-year-old former army captain died of natural causes. Several reports have since suggested he was executed by a hit squad at government headquarters on the 15th of October in 1987, an account that appeared to be supported by the results of the autopsy. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tlankamatlangu in Johannesburg. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. Here's Wasani Matebule with your economic news. Thanks, Pumelele, and good evening. The Kenyan government is literally broke and has been unable to meet its financial obligations. Thousands of public servants, health workers, parliamentary staff, and teachers in the public schools have not yet received their salaries as the National Treasury in Nairobi continues to battle the financial crisis. Moegigonyo reports. Operations in various government departments have been grossly affected by the financial crunch, and the situation looks bleak. Thousands of public servants, including health workers, 
Parliamentary staff, county governments and teachers in public schools have not yet received their salaries. Electricity and water supply in parliamentary buildings have been disconnected for several days for failure to pay monthly bills. And as a result, Kenyan parliament has been up in arms against the financial crisis in the country, with the opposition members of parliament accusing the government for the mismanagement of the economy, including rampant corruption cases in public sector. Kenya's new mining law will monitor the country's mineral resources through the value chain to ensure transparency in payments made to the government from the sector. Cabinet Secretary in charge of mining, Najib Balala, says the country will choose to legislate rather than to negotiate with multinationals in order for the industry to benefit all and not a section of the country. He was speaking in Nairobi at a conference for African women in mining. Sarah Kimani reports. Estimates from Kenya's Chamber of Mines indicate that the sector can contribute at least 6.4% to the country's gross domestic product, GDP. Under the new law, companies will be required to come up with community social investment plans in consultations with locals in the mining areas. While the move to replace Kenya's 70-year-old law on mining is seen as an affront on the players in the sector, Kenya says it will boost investment. Kenya is the world's third largest producer of soda ash used to make glass and the largest producer of Flospa. It also has deposits of coal, gold and titanium. Sarah Kimani, SBC News. Zimbabwe has asked two ferrochrome producers, including a unit of China's Sano Store, who owns 80% of all chrome mining claims, to release some ground for distribution to new investors. Zimbabwe holds the world's second largest deposits of chrome, which is smelted to produce ferrochrome a raw material used in the making of stainless steel. Zimbabwe has more than 950 million in chrome reserves, most of which are held by Sino Steel Zimasco and Zimbabwe Alloys, which is being owned by Anglo-American. Uganda is taking a closer look at sending its crude oil through Tanzania after stepping back from an accord to run a pipeline through Kenya. This is uh, the landlocked East African nation searches for the cheapest export route. Government signed a memorandum of understanding with the Tanzania Petroleum Development Corporation and Total SA's exploration and production arm to study an alternate route for the pipeline. While crude was discovered in Uganda in 2006 and four years later in Kenya by Talo Oil and its partners, both areas remain in the planning stage of commercial development. Uganda evaluates its resources at 6.5 billion barrels, while Kenya may hold 600 million barrels. And finally, Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari has taken his first steps uh, towards overhauling the country's troubled state oil firm by giving its exploration joint ventures control over their budgets as a way to overcome chronic cash shortages. Corruption and mismanagement at the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation have hampered an industry that provides 70% of state income. NNPC has been accused of failing to account for tens of billions of US dollars. And that's your economics news for the evening.
1950 Central African Time. It's time for Sports News with Tommy Kluza. This is Africa Digest. Thanks for joining us in your sport. Let's start with soccer. After a long-running investigation, FIFA's Ethics Committee has taken action uh, against a former South African Football Association official over match-fixing allegations. Lindy Rekaka has been banned for six years from all soccer-related activities. SAPC's Janet Whitten takes the story further. The ban against Lindy Lekika is effective immediately. FIFA have been investigating this matter for some time and Kika has been banned even though he no longer holds any position within South African soccer. The allegations center around four matches the national team played in the lead-up to hosting the FIFA World Cup in 2010. SABC brings to you Rugby World Cup 2015 live on SABC2 and SABC radio stations. Let's do this. And now in rugby, South Africa's Plumbo coach Haneke Meyer had a selection headache in the second round this week ahead of the Saturday's World Cup quarterfinal against Wales. Veteran Victor Medfield was on the road to recovery from a hamstring strain, but 22-year-old Lord De Yaga is thriving in his absence. But the decision was made for Meyer when Medfield approached him this week saying that he was still feeling tight and that he had not completely recovered from the hamstring strain. Scrama Furi Dupre continues to lead the site. And Mayor says that Victor Medfield was very close to selection as he trained with the team for the past two days, but there is still some sore tightness and some soreness here and there. Mayor was announcing the team to face Wales on Saturday at the Wednesday's team announcement. Peter Steph Dutoy will continue to provide log cover off the bench. The kickoff of that match on Saturday is at 5 p.m. Central African time. Meanwhile, Springbok utility back Patrick Lambie says that the national team's quarter-final exit at the 2011 Rugby World Cup was one of the lows of his career and that he doesn't want a repeat of that happening again. As the Springbok has approached yet another quarter-final clash, this time around against Wales at Twickenham on Saturday. Yeah, look, um, that was one of the, the lowlights um, 
of my career so far. Obviously, we we had a huge expectation. It was very disappointing. Um, yeah, so I guess you know what that feels like, and definitely don't want to repeat that that feeling. Um, but uh, we've been in knockout stage or knockout phase since round two. So um, I think for the for the whole group, the the pressure's pretty much the same. Um, and yeah, we we really want to make our country proud um, and and win at all costs. And Springbok centre Jesse Creel says that he's enjoying every moment of being at the Rugby World Cup. Creel says that he's expecting another difficult outing against Wales and that he's raring to get on the field and play. My experience so far has been great. Um, I'm really enjoying every every minute of this World Cup and um, I've really had a good time. Um, I think, uh, yeah, expecting another hard game this week. It's going to be a big, big challenge for us big challenge for them as well but I think we're all looking forward to it and um, we're just excited to get onto the field and um, play some rugby SABC brings to you Rugby World Cup 2015 live on SABC2 and SABC radio stations and now in tennis Britain's Andy Murray feels ecstatic after his first win over American Steve Johnson 6264 at the ATP Masters 100 event in Shanghai Mari says that he will be happy if everything goes well. He will meet big saving American John Eisner in round three later today. Playing earlier makes it um, a little bit quicker, so you know breaking serve will be will be tougher. Um, but yeah, I mean, I played well against him in the past. I've won some close ones against him, but you know he's played played very well this year. Um, and he's been a lot more consistent. Meanwhile, Australia's Nick Ryogis is disappointed after his three-set defeat to Kane Ishikori of Japan in round two of the ATP Masters event in Shanghai. I served well in the first set. I would have liked to maybe made a couple more first serves in the second and third, but um, you know, I'm not. You know, I'm obviously disappointed with the loss, but you know, I competed well. I left it all out there, and you know, he played some really clutch points towards the end of that match, so it was too good. And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Spumelele Zondi. This is Africa Digest. Recapping our top stories, Kenyan government unable to pay public sector wages. Ethiopia still battles regions that practice female genital mutilation. In economics, Zambia expected to produce 600,000 tons of copper this year. And in sports, FIFA's ethics committee bans a former official of the South African Football Association. And uh, that wraps up Africa Digest for today. For myself, it's Pumalele Zondi, producer Luanda Mawome, technical producer Sihlen and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you for listening. For comments, send us emails info at channelafrica.co.za, SMS plus 27796957930, tweet Channel Africa 1. We leave you with Nomalizo by Letambulu.